I'm Lauren McCarthy, and you're listening to Swan Song, a true crime podcast. It's June of 1992, and classmates and friends Stacy McCall, age 18, and Susie Streeter, age 19, are excited to attend their graduation from Kickapoo High School in Springfield, Missouri. Susie and Stacy met in about second grade and attended the same schools growing up. Stacy was five foot three, 120 pounds, had brown hair down to her hips and blue eyes. She worked on Mondays through Thursdays at Springfield Gymnastics Center and also modeled wedding dresses at a local bridal shop owned by some of her parents' friends. Her parents said she dated occasionally but had no steady boyfriend. Susie was described as being a little bit more edgy than Stacy. She was 5'5", five five, 102 pounds, had straight, shoulder-length blonde hair and brown eyes. She was artsy and dated more of the bad boy types. She worked at the local movie theater throughout high school. Her high school best friend described her as having the best personality, stating she was super friendly, outgoing, outspoken, and very strong. Susie had moved out of her mother's house twice by this time. The previous summer, she moved in with her boyfriend, Mike Kovacs, at his grandmother's house, and lived there for a couple months. Then she moved back in with her mom in September. In October, Susie filed a restraining order against Mike, stating he had threatened and harassed her. Then, in the spring of that year, she moved in with her brother, Bart, who was 27 at the time. She only lived with him for a couple of weeks before they had a fight. Susie said his radio was too loud, he was drunk, and refused to turn it down. So she reached around him to adjust the knob on the stereo and he shoved Susie. Susie then moved back in with her mother and stopped talking to her brother altogether. The girls' families attended their high school graduation at 6 p.m. on June 6, 1992 at the Hammond Student Center and watched the girls accept their diplomas, feeling incredibly proud. For Susie's mother, Cheryl, it was an extra special moment as Susie was her only daughter. Susie was looking forward to the future. She wanted to go to cosmetology school. She talked about going into hairstyling, following in her mother's footsteps. After graduation, the girls planned to go to some graduation after parties with another friend named Janelle Kirby. Susie arrived at Janelle's home in Battlefield, Missouri around 8.15 p.m., with Stacy arriving shortly after 8.30. The girls walked to the first party at Brian Joy's house close by. He told the girls they could stay the night there. A store clerk at Apco Amart said he saw Susie and Stacy at the store between 10 to 10.30 p.m., Their friends disputed this and said the girls never left the party in Battlefield. At 12.45 a.m., Susie and Stacy got a ride from other friends to a second party in Springfield. 
they left their cars at Janelle's house. At 1.50 a.m., the group left the party in Springfield and returned to Brian Joy's house in Battlefield. He then told them they could not sleep at his house that night. After a night of party hopping, the girls went to their friend Janelle's house, where their cars were located, and planned to spend the night there. Unfortunately, Janelle had so much family in town for her graduation that there was just no room for Susie and Stacy to sleep. So, as a last-minute decision, the girls decided to stay the night at Susie's house. They would get some rest, get in contact with their friends in the morning, and go to a water park called Whitewater in Branson, about 45 miles south of Springfield. Stacy and Susie left Janelle's house around 2.20 a.m., Stacy following Susie as they drove separate cars. The next morning, on June 7th, everyone was excited for their big trip to the water park. Janelle woke up and called Susie's house around 7.30 a.m. Nobody answered, so she left a message. She kept waiting to hear from the girls, but they weren't calling her back. So, around 12.30 p.m., Janelle was starting to feel a little concerned and confused. Janelle and her boyfriend, Mike, went over to Susie's house. In the driveway of the house were three vehicles belonging to Susie, Stacy, and Susie's mom, Cheryl, who also lived at the home. As Janelle and Mike approached the front door, they noticed there was broken glass on the front step. The glass that surrounded the light bulb above the front door had been shattered. Mike swept up the glass as Janelle wasn't wearing shoes and he didn't want her to cut her feet. The front door was unlocked, so Mike and Janelle entered the home. Everything in the house appeared to be normal to the two, with the exception that Stacy, Susie, and her mother Cheryl were not in the house. They waited a few minutes for the women to return and then decided to leave. As they were headed out the door, the phone rang. Janelle picked up the phone and described the call as being an obscene phone call. The caller did not identify himself, but made sexually explicit comments. Janelle hung up the phone. Although the call was odd, Janelle remembered Susie complaining about prank calls before. The phone rang again, and it was the same thing. Mike and Janelle were confused by the bizarre scene and they assumed maybe the girls got a ride to the water park with some other friends, so they left. That morning, Stacy's parents were also surprised they had not heard from their daughter, as she was good about keeping in contact and letting them know where she was. Her mother Janice last spoke to Stacy the previous night and said she would be staying at Janelle's house. She told her mother that she would call in the morning when she woke up. This was before the girls arrived to find Janelle's house was too full and decided to stay the night at Susie's the previous night. Stacy's mother was becoming concerned, so she called Janelle's house and spoke with her younger sister, who informed her Susie and Stacy decided at the last minute to stay at Susie's house. Stacy's mother realized her daughter was likely already on the way to the water park and assumed she would hear from her upon her return to Springfield later that day.
But seven hours passed with no contact from Stacy. Her mother Janice had some friends with kids who worked at the water park. She contacted them to see if the girls had been at the water park and was told they had not. At 5.30 p.m., she decided to just go over to Susie and Cheryl's house to see what was going on. When she arrived, she saw all three cars in the driveway and assumed the women were all there. As she walked up to the front door, Janelle and her boyfriend Mike returned to the house to see if the girls were there. They all went inside the house together. Upon entering Susie's room, Janice saw Cheryl, Stacy, and Susie's purses sitting on the floor, all lined up in a row. The clothes she last saw Stacy wearing were folded up nicely on the dresser. This was an extremely confusing scene. Why was Cheryl's purse in her daughter's room? Why were all the purses lined up? Why were the only clothes Stacy brought with her that night folded up in the room? Janice called her husband, Stuart, from the Streeter home and told him the girls were nowhere to be found and that she had called everyone she could think of. He told her he would be right over, and he had a bad feeling. In the meantime, Janice called the police. When police officer Bookout responded to the scene, Janice explained she couldn't find her daughter or the occupants of the home, Cheryl and Susie. By this time, a number of people were at the home and were worried about the women. Several of the girls' friends were there as well as Stacy's parents. Officer Bookout did a walkthrough of the home. Nothing in the home appeared to be in disarray. There was no sign of a struggle. In Susie's room, her bed appeared to have been slept in, and clothing from both of the girls was folded on Susie's dresser. The girls had removed their makeup before going to bed. The officer looked in all three of the women's purses and found that nothing appeared to have been taken. Cheryl still had cash in her purse. The girl's jewelry was still in the room. Cheryl was described as having been a chain smoker. When Officer Bookout found her cigarettes and lighter, he found this to be a little troubling. She would not have left the house without them. He filled out a missing persons report for Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. The following morning, the case was assigned to Detective David Asher of the Springfield Police Department. He immediately felt that something was amiss. As detectives began working through the crime scene, they realized it had already been seriously compromised. At least 10 people had been in and out of that house after the women went missing. Items had been touched, moved, and the glass from the front step of the home had been swept up. Crime scene investigators went to the house and collected any evidence they could find. They also fingerprinted the entire house. Investigators started to try to piece together what had happened between 2.30 a.m. when Susie and Stacy left Janelle's house and 8 in the morning when Janelle called the house and received no answer. Detectives came up with two possible scenarios. Someone took them from the house, maybe multiple perpetrators who used weapons to get the women to comply, or 
someone they knew came to the home and lured them outside with some kind of ruse. A task force was assembled to investigate the triple disappearance. Detectives began interviewing family members of the women. They started to focus on Cheryl Levitt, Susie's mother, wondering if someone close to her could be responsible for the disappearances. Cheryl was 47 years old, 5 feet tall, and about 110 pounds. She had blonde, collar-length, wavy hair and brown eyes. She was a hairdresser at New Attitudes Hair Salon, located at 210 West Sunshine Street in Springfield. Cheryl was raised in the Seattle area and married her first husband, Brent Streeter, in 1964. They had two children together, Bart and Susie, and were divorced shortly after Susie was born. Cheryl remarried in 1980 to a man named Don Levitt. They moved from Seattle to Springfield, Missouri. When they divorced in 1989, Don returned to Seattle where he later remarried and Cheryl bought her home at 1717 East Delmar Street where the three women would later disappear from. At 9.30 p.m. on June 6th, a friend called Cheryl and spoke with her for a while. Cheryl said she was hanging a wallpaper border and stripping a chair. This may be important because paint stripper has a very strong smell and should not be used in an enclosed environment. If Cheryl was working on this in the house, she likely would have at least opened the windows. The investigators tried to follow any leads they could. They began looking into the obscene phone calls Janelle had answered upon arriving at Cheryl and Susie's home. The caller was described as being a male, maybe a teenager, but she did not recognize the voice. Unfortunately, the phone company was unable to determine who had placed those calls. After 48 hours had passed with no signs of the three women, the town of Springfield was on edge. Residents began locking their doors. People did not feel safe. Friends, family, and volunteers had flyers created and distributed across the town. The media caught on quickly and started reporting on the case, now calling it the Springfield Three. By June 10th, friends, family, and businesses helped to distribute more than 20,000 posters with the missing women's photos. The police chief in Springfield stated, the women almost certainly did not intend to disappear. The Springfield Police worked with the FBI, the Missouri State Highway Patrol, and other law enforcement agencies to conduct investigations into the missing women's lives. But no positive leads have helped to clarify the location of the women or the reason for their disappearances. Susie's brother, Bart Streeter, was investigated early on in the case. Remember, she had lived with him for a few weeks before they got into an argument, and she moved back in with her mother. I'm not going to get into this too much, as Bart really had his name dragged through the mud over the years, 
and he has since been cleared as a suspect in the case. It's hard to imagine having two of your closest family members go missing, trying to make sense of what happened, and after some time probably trying to grieve, all while being suspected as having been involved. An ex-boyfriend of Susie's was also heavily investigated. His name was Dustin Reckla. He worked at the local movie theater with Susie. Dustin and his friend Michael Clay were involved in a mausoleum break-in where the two stole teeth from corpses and used Susie's car in the commission of the crime. When Susie was brought in for questioning, she told authorities she knew they were involved. She was scheduled to testify against them in court. Investigators thought these two may have been seeking revenge against Susie for cooperating with the police. One important note, though, about this theory is that these two were really only facing minor charges. It's not like Susie's testimony would put them in prison for life. Police were unable to find any fingerprints or evidence at Cheryl and Susie's home that could connect them to the crime. Additionally, both suspects passed polygraph tests. Then, police received a tip stating they needed to look into a man named Robert Craig Cox. Cox had previously been convicted of kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon. He was also the prime suspect in the 1976 murder of a woman named Sharon Zellers. Zellers was a Florida teenager who was abducted on her way home from work. Cox was staying at a hotel near Disney World with his parents on the night she went missing. That night, he returned to the hotel with severe injuries. In fact, his tongue had been almost completely bitten off. After he was taken to the hospital, Sharon's body was found about 100 feet from his hotel room. After being arrested, he was let go due to insufficient evidence tying him to the crime. Robert Cox moved to Springfield, Missouri in 1992. He worked for a telephone company that was surveying the wiring in front of Cheryl and Susie's home. He was also previously employed by the same car dealership that Stacy's father worked at. Although her father didn't know Cox, he later stated there were times when Stacy brought her father lunch at work and Cox could have seen her then. Police brought Cox in for an interview, and he denied having any involvement in the disappearance of the Springfield Three. He said on the day they were missing, he had gone to a golf tournament and stayed with his parents. The next morning, he took his girlfriend to church. Cox's girlfriend verified he stayed with his parents the previous night, then took her to church the next morning. Investigators just didn't have enough to keep pursuing him as a suspect in the case. In 1995, Cox came back on police's radar when he was arrested in Decatur, Texas, for pointing a gun at a 12-year-old girl. He went to prison and started serving a life sentence for aggravated robbery. When investigators went to Texas to interview him a second time, he refused to speak with them. When his former girlfriend was re-interviewed, 
This time, she said she had no idea where Cox was on the night of the disappearances, and they did not go to church the next morning. In 1996, a KY3 news investigative reporter named Dennis Graves traveled to a Texas prison to interview Robert Cox regarding the disappearance of the Springfield Three. The following is from that interview. Cox, I know that they are dead. I'll say that, and I know that. Graves, that's not a theory? Cox, I just know that they are dead. That's not my theory. I just know that. There's no doubt about that. That same year, Graves' interview was subpoenaed by authorities and was presented before a grand jury regarding the disappearance of the Springfield Three. A grand jury is a jury selected to examine the validity of an accusation before a trial. So basically, this is used to determine if there is sufficient evidence to go to trial at all. The grand jury never handed down any charges. This case is so tragic because we have Cheryl, who is a single mom, trying to provide a good life for her daughter. Then we have Stacy and Susie, who just graduated high school. They had their whole lives ahead of them, and the world will never know what amazing things they would have done. Although police have investigated thousands of tips related to the disappearance of Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl, this case remains unsolved. Obviously, one of the biggest hindrances in this case is the fact that the crime scene was so contaminated by several people going in and out before police were even alerted of the disappearances. I really hope that one day this mystery will be solved. Maybe someone who knows something will come forward, or technology will advance in a way that allows new types of testing to be performed on any remaining evidence in the case. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, please rate and share. To stay updated on new episodes and to see photos related to each episode, please check out facebook.com slash swansongpod. If you have a case you would like to hear covered, you can email me at swansongpod at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.